We want to tell you what we know as we know it, but we just got a report in that there's been some sort of explosion at the World Trade Center in New York City. One report said, and we can't confirm any of this, that a plane may have hit one of the two towers of the World Trade Center, but again, you're seeing the live pictures here. We have no further details than that. We don't know anything about what they have concluded happened there this morning, but we're going to find out and, of course, make sure that everybody knows on the air. These are, of course, the two twin Trade Center buildings that are down at the foot of Manhattan, that they really are the beacons of New York. It was there that there was the explosion a couple of years ago uh, brought about by terrorists. We've, that's all gone through the courts, but this, we don't know anything about, we don't know about anything that has happened here other than the fact that there's obviously been a major incident there, and we're going to go to a special report now from ABC News. This is an ABC News special report. Now, by the entire ABC network, uh, Good Morning America was in progress in the East Coast and the Midwest, but we're joined by the entire network just to show you some pictures at the foot of New York City. This is at the World Trade Center. Obviously, a major fire there, and there has been some sort of explosion. We don't fully know the details. There is one report, as of yet unconfirmed, that a plane has hit of the World Trade Center, and you can see that there is smoke there coming out of at least two sides of the building. And as you said, there are two towers, the tallest structures in Manhattan, on the island of Manhattan. We're trying to get people on the telephone to see what more we can learn. We have no idea if it was a plane, was it in any sense deliberate, was it an accident? It does seem to be that there is considerable and, and truly terrifying damage on some of those floors at the top. This angle is a little deceptive. As you know, there are two Trade Center towers, and the second tower there is hidden behind uh, the first. This is uh, really almost the picture postcard of New York City. Um, it's the, uh, that and the Empire State Building, I guess, are the two most recognizable symbols of New York. There you can see uh, the two, well, we had there for just briefly the other angle of the World Trade Center towers, but this is uh, confined to one of the towers on the upper floors. Uh, these buildings, uh, I think they're 110 stories each, so this would be in the uh, in the top 15 or 20 floors there. You mentioned earlier that, of course, as we all know, years ago there was that terrorist attack. It took place down on the ground and in the underground levels and the garage levels. Uh, but again, that's not to imply that we have any reason yep. at this point to believe that this is, this is terrorism or not. We simply don't know. statement tonight is, we shall never forget 9-11. As we approach the anniversary of the, one of the most, if not the most, horrible events to touch a nation with the terror acts of 9-11. The problem tonight is, and the concerning part is, that the question is, are we any safer today than we have ever than we were back then the answer is absolutely not this country stands on the brink of terror and has continued to do so all of these years tonight we take a look back at the sounds the sights hoping in some way we will stir something up that we need to do better 
Tonight, we look back at the tragedy of 9-11. I'm Lamont Banks, along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Samson Riddle, William Williams, Clint Stewart, Dennis Merritt, Tanique Wright, and the entire AJC radio team as we take a sober look at the tragedy of that day. And many people will say, well, what, what, what were you doing on this day when that event happened? And I'm going to ask some folks here, where were you when this tragedy struck? Dennis, I'll start with you. What were you doing when this, when this report came in of the tragedy that hit this nation? I, I was at work, uh, and no one was really working because the news had came on, and everybody was back and forth trying to get to a TV to try to figure out what was going on. And then as the news started, you know, finding out truly that this was an attack, all work stopped, and everybody just started watching TV, and eventually they, they told everybody to go home. I was working at America Teleconferencing Company at that time doing actually uh, conference calls for Fortune 500 companies and government agencies as well. And when it actually happened, uh, it was the clearest, bluest sky here in Colorado that day. It was a beautiful day. And no one really believed it. You know, we had people running off of the bridge for the calls. People were coming back. Supervisors were coming back. And they did the same thing that they did with you, Dennis. They excused us, uh, gave us the opportunity to go home uh, and to really reflect because that was it that was going on on that particular day. I remember saying when I actually saw the first plane, I thought it was just an accident, that it was some type of air traffic control uh, mix-up that uh, they flew into those towers and of course, later learned that it was a deliberate act uh, of terror. Um, Tanique, where were you? I actually was uh, working for a cable company. I was a supervisor. And you know how in cable, co if you've ever worked in a cable company, they have a knock and they have all the TVs on. And I remember somebody came and said, oh, a plane accidentally flew into the World Trade Center. So we all went in there and like uh, Dennis has said, we were, uh, he mentioned that uh, when he was, uh, sorry, <laughs> losing my train of thought, it's working that um, they came in and said it was attack. And same thing, I was there for probably about two hours just watching the news. And then finally we just closed the call center that day and sent everybody home because nobody could focus because we're all, we were all in awe that, you know, nothing like this has ever happened on U.S. soil before. Absolutely. Clint? Yeah, I, I recall... Uh, I was on an interview call uh, for a consulting gig, and uh, the, the uh, call, uh, we were looking at what was happening on TV, and we started talking about what was happening on TV instead of what the, what the uh, consulting uh, engagement was about. And uh, we're trying to figure out uh, what's going on you know, with the news, and you're right, it was a beautiful day. I was outside, and uh, the caller, uh, was there we we're trying to figure out is this is this real is this an accident what's what's going on with this and uh i remember dealing with it for about an hour and a half and uh it was a lot of confusion that day a heck of a lot of confusion 
and I don't think uh, during that time that that I was looking at it that it was decided that it was actually a deliberate attack, but it was definitely, uh, you know, watching the news and watching the situation unfold. But I remember talking about a, an engagement for security consulting. Okay, William. Well, like like most of others, uh, you know, I was I was at the I was in the office. And I remember our team sat pretty close together, so we're all in the same area. And all of a sudden, we start hearing this chatter, and people are like, "Look, look, look, look!" You know, we 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 got on our lap our laptops, or got on our computers, we started streaming what was going on. And so they start talking about it, and I remember seeing the second plane go into the uh, the second tower. And I remember my teammates were they were I mean it was just everybody was scared they were in shock is this real or what's going on you know and everybody had so many of your questions afraid pacing around the, the office and like most here at this table you know they they just sent us home they said guys you go home um you know we'll, we'll you know send out emails let people know what's happening and um you know just look forward to some communication from the office and i remember going home and um it was just this real eerie feeling. But it was, again, the same thing, like Clint said, and you said. It was a beautiful day. I remember stepping outside, and I just looked up, and the skies were quiet. There was they nothing. Were. There was nothing. And it was this eerie, eerie feeling. And you just didn't know it's a, this uncertainty of what you just saw and the, and all the damage. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was really scary to watch. Samson. Uh, yeah, so I remember at the time I was um, working for a, a popular restaurant chain, and you know, like everybody's mentioned, I mean, it became from a story of speculation to you know a, uh, a horrific reality. And I guess unlike everybody else, we didn't get sent home. Uh, we actually experienced a flood of people. Like everybody was trying to find a TV. They heard it, they had heard about it on the radio, um, and of course, you know, if you have a restaurant, work at a restaurant, there was a bar attached. Um, people were people were sorrowful they were in there and it was just crowded all night I mean um, but it was a very very intense time um, you know just to sit there and face the reality you know that in your lifetime you had to experience um, somebody having the audacity to attack Americans on American soil um, and yet just thinking about it before the show yeah 18 months later I was uh, after that I was in the fight so it kind of hits home Absolutely right. Dave? Well, I was in St. Louis on a business trip, and I remember when it happened, I had gotten a text message, um, and I really didn't understand what the message was about. And I tried to make a call to the person, and none of my calls would go through. Uh, I don't remember that the company I was at, if they had a television, I don't remember that. I think people were listening to it on the radio because they didn't send us home. And I remember that night when I left the office, I was trying to find someplace to go get something to eat because I was staying in a hotel and everything was closed. I finally found one restaurant that was open and there were four people in there. It was just, it was deserted. And I remember that week, nobody knew really how to act all week. And when it came to the end of the week, when I was supposed to fly home, there was still the no fly going on. So I had to rent a car, and I drove back to Colorado Springs. Kendrick. 
Um, I remember I I was ba- I worked the evenings at that time, so I was basically just waking up. And so I remember cutting the TV on, and all the news at that time was just reporting that a plane had hit the first tower. So as the news was going on, I mean, I didn't really know what was happening. I didn't know if, because the news was still speculating. Was this an accident? Was, you know, uh, they were they were also saying that, you know, the building was safe because they were recounting how, I guess, the Empire State Building had been hit before or whatever. And then shortly after, they started telling news reports about they believe a second plane hit the building. And that's when it really got serious. The whole the whole uh, mood especially from the news changed because it was like, yeah, this is deliberate. So it was, it was, uh, it's one of those moments where, I mean, at that point I was just fixated, confused at first. And then I was just fixated on the television. Like, wow, is this really happening? And in America, cause you never thought at the time, no one, nothing like that could happen in America, but you're watching it, you know, relatively live. It's happening on the, on the news as, as they were getting it, they were reporting it. And it was just, uh, it was just one of those days. Yeah. You'll, you'll, as, as, one generation may remember Kennedy assassination. I know our generation remember uh, the 9-11 terror attacks. Absolutely. Demetrius? Yes, uh, as Kendrick was saying, uh, myself, David, and, and, and Ken all worked at the same company. And they were night shift, and I was working the day shift on the same project. Uh, we were in the, we had a break room. It was at a, a compact uh, before HP bought them. And we th- when I went into the break room, obviously I was getting something to eat. Um, the report kind of was they didn't know what's going on they they were saying you know how many sh- times they shoot films and one of the reporters got on early and said well we, we believe a small a, a plane a, a, the first report was a small plane and as kendrick said every time more details came went from a small plane to a larger plane so every 30 minutes you know a, a, a new fact came in but when it first came it was just a little blurb on the bottom of the screen saying a small plane goes into the World Trade Center. So, of course, we're all thinking of accidents. So, uh, again, it's one of those things that are indelible barked in my mind. They shut down schools. I remember my daughter was in preschool. They, they, the whole city, and I think most cities across the country, it was we were in shock. So that's something we'll never forget, as Ken said. So, Absolutely. David? Uh, yeah, I remember. I was actually hadn't got to the office yet. I was actually got taken a shower, got out, sat on the end of my bed and turned on the TV. And I turned it on and one of the uh, towers was smoking. So I'm sitting there and I just start watching uh, the coverage. And I don't think I was, I just sat there. I hadn't thought about the office much or going in. I just kind of sat there and started watching the news. And all of a sudden I saw the second uh, plane hit the tower. And then, I was just in a state of shock. Uh, so I actually stayed, uh, didn't go to the office, stayed and watched uh, just the news on the event and obviously uh, became very shocked by the overall tragedy of the situation. Um, There's just nothing you can say because I had obviously been to the trade centers before. So you just kind of can at least have some envision a little bit about what what possibly could be going through the minds of New Yorkers at the time. It's just, you just couldn't believe it. Well, ironically, we, and I have to bring this up, um, the vision of the IRP-5, um, 
was born out of the tragedy of 9-11. I think that's why it is so disturbing that the efforts of the IRP-5 was had one goal in mind, and that was to keep the homeland safe. And I think that makes it more of a tragedy of what happened to the IRP-5 because they saw the devastation at Ground Zero. They saw, as many Americans have, the loss of life. And they were driven to do something. They were compelled to do something. And that was to develop this software that would keep the homeland safe, to keep communication between law enforcement agencies to communicate threats facing the nation. It brings me almost to tears that all that was set out to be done came to naught as a result of a corrupt system. That the body bags in the United States ceased to matter. The people that lost loved ones, did that not matter? As these men worked tirelessly to change the scope of a nation and to keep our children safe, I cannot be silent in that fact. And that's something that really needs to be looked at. That is this country so bent on ego and racism that even the cost of life doesn't matter? That is a tragedy. And we sit here today no safer now than we were before. Right now, I'm going to play a clip of a young girl that lost her father on 9-11. I want you to listen to this and understand it's little girls like this young lady who lost her dad then is truly what the IRP meant to spare from such tragedy. Let's play the clip.
been five years, Daddy. Love is all that I need. I'm in fifth grade and now. Find it there and I really like computers. It isn't too hard to see. But math is hard. Mommy lets me sleep in one of your t-shirts. Oh, once in your life you find someone. I think it still smells like you. What's in your world? Sleep with the light on anymore. I'm trying not to cry, Daddy, but it's too Nothing can change what you mean to me. I really miss you, Daddy. There's a love that I could say. Just hold me now. Can you see me? Can you see me? Can you see me? It's been ten years, Daddy. I started high school. Lying here my I made the honor roll. It hard to I hope you're proud of me. I'm also on the soccer team. Love is all that I need. Can you see me on the field? And I, found it there I started thinking about college. Do you think I can be a doctor? I know you'll be with me when I walk down the aisle. I've been waiting for so long I try not to be sad to But it hurts love to come alone. I hope you know you're my hero I love you so much Now our dreams are coming true Can you see me? Can you see me? Fifteen years, Daddy. I'm finishing college. I got into med school. Finding it hard to believe. I really want to help people. You have always inspired me. I met a nice guy. Who is really special to me. I think you would really like him. We talk about our life together. Mom says he's a lot like you. I think about you every day. I'm still sad. But you make me strong. Can you see me? Can you see me? I miss you, Daddy. I really miss you, Daddy. I miss you, Daddy. I miss you, Daddy. nation in ruins, a little girl missing her father. We continue as we continue to remember 9-11. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. We have a big problem and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime, it's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. 
If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Picture this, a 75-year-old man convicted of murder waiting for his trial to finally go through. He's been on death row for 25 years now and finds out he's been wrongfully convicted and is completely innocent. Not only does this mean that 25 years of his life have been spent in jail for no reason, but that the actual murderer could still be out there right now. The bad thing is that this exact thing happens more often than you think, but you can help stop it by supporting our campaign to abolish the death penalty. I stand for equality. I stand for individuality. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. same color. When you turn off the lights. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders, 30% were property violators such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that 
drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. I wanted to be in the military since I, was, since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Corpsman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. 
But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. Ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, as we continue to remember 9-11, the tragedy, the loss of life was astronomical, um, and we're going to continue, as I was talking prior to the break in regards to the work and the hard efforts of the RP 5 uh, David, I'd ask you that... The understanding is is that there was such devastation. Tell me personally the impact of 9-11 that motivated you and the guys to try to institute change. Well, we were already embroiled in a uh, somewhat developing some software, but it was more of a just a desktop solution for a single investigator. But as we heard uh, more details uh, about what contributed to the information sharing failures or contributed to the attacks of 9-11, it, we just thought we could make a difference and use our talents as uh, software engineers and IT professionals to actually make a difference. So uh, we went about to develop a more comprehensive solution that would, software solution that would foster greater collaboration and information sharing with law enforcement. Uh, And part of motivation, we stood uh, looking at the holes uh, in that, where the buildings used to be. Uh, We actually, as we were underway developing this software, we, uh, we were actually dealing with the NYPD. Uh, and we got to hear some of the inside scoop about what was going on. Um, and it was just, it's very sad. Uh, I don't think people realize how many people actually jumped from that building. Uh, he said many, uh, when the NYPD guys told us that so many people jumped from the burning building and when they would jump and hit the ground, their body parts would just disperse in in various directions so they said they smelled death literally for months burning flesh and death and uh burning flesh and death they smelled for months on end uh as the as the building continued continued to smolder so uh and then they tell us they would pick up a hand over here and then a few blocks down there's there's a foot and things like that so all that stuff kind of hits home uh sadly um 
I believe law enforcement in many respects is still in a reactive mode versus proactive. Uh, and that, that goes a lot for our country uh, sometimes. Uh, they just react and wait for something to happen. Like, we're not going to spend any money or we're really not going to pay attention to this. It just It's just the, uh, the big issue of the day was 9-11. It got all the press and uh, sadly they feel like they have to at least put up a front that they're doing something about it and, and it's in the media but really uh, not a whole lot in, in my opinion was done after 9-11 because once it's out of sight out of mind and over a period of time people actually forget uh, actually uh, what happened that day and, and they just kind of go back to business as usual and uh, wait for the next uh a terrorist shooter drop. No, absolutely right. And um, I learned today through a little research that there was an actual f- stairwell at the top of the building where a gentleman, as the building collapsed, rolled that stairwell all the way down to the floor and survived. And there was some talk of a people that may some people may have been under the stairwell were not caught in the stacking if you will of the collapse but basically a descendant in this one area and the gentleman had thought to jump and he said he thought let me get in this little space and he made it all the way to the floor which is nothing short of a miracle anyway. But others were not as fortunate. You understand, as David just said, people that were jumping out the window, it's either the fire was at such extreme heat levels, they made a decision which way they would die. Do I just jump out? I'm going to die anyway, they thought. So do I jump out or do I try to survive as this gentleman did what do you do in that situation? Right now, we're going to play a clip about the sounds. You're going to hear the sounds of this 9-11 attack. Let's play the clip. Ha, ha, ha. 
second tower just came down. I, I seen the first tower come out. senseless acts of terror in this country because it could have been avoided. We learned that from the IRP-5. I simply do not understand why human life does not matter. And all the politics, all the nonsense, And the guys that could have brought a change about in this country, David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zappolo, Clinton Stewart, were thrown away, thrown to the side. And that is why we are no safer today than we were then. I am saddened deeply by this. Samson. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is the, the lawmakers and legislators that were in power then, most of them are still there now. And none of them, if hardly any of them, have ever had to stand there in silence as a folded flag is handed to them, handed to one of their family members, handed to anything like that, even resembling closely to them. So the value of human life, the value that these men would have provided not only to the country, but to every single one of its citizens, that we would be able to prevent more American flags being folded and handed to desperate family members and children. They don't care about that. They care about the billions of dollars of, you know, hush money, the money that goes on, that is exchanged hands behind closed doors. They care about keeping their buddies in power. They care about all this other mess and crap versus the stability and and safety of the the United States populace. The fact of the matter is is these five men have, you know, had a product that would I mean greatly raise the the awareness of not only, you know, our our police sources on this side of um, you know, this side of the pond but also it would be probably be able to provide intel to military sources so that we could be preemptive and proactive against you know um, terrorist forces by, cor by by correlating data and bringing it to light you know I mean the fact of the matter is is they, they have a, they had a preventative tool and because they weren't going to be able to line their pockets and make them just a little bit thicker thicker you know they couldn't get their bank account to have a few more extra zeros in the end of it they decided to throw away the safety of the again the safety of the american people and they put five men behind you know behind bars for you know sentences eight to ten years and luckily they i mean i say luckily they got out in eight 
they sacrificed human lives, not counting the thousands that died on 9-11, not counting the thousands that died in multiple theaters across the world, not counting the thousands that are still under attack all around the globe at, you know, American embassies and everywhere else that we've seen since 9-11. Well, it, it speaks to the sleeper cells that are in the country right now. This is what people don't understand. The stats and the facts show there are sleeper cells of terrorists in every city in this country. So we're, no, we're not safer. And you have an event of this magnitude happen and we just go to sleep. We go to sleep and play the political chess game. Not about human lives, not about that little girl that missed her father, not about the, the, the folks that were in that tower calling loved ones saying, hey mom, dad, I'm, I wanted to say goodbye. I'm not going to make it out of here. No one thinks about this. Mont, it's been reduced to another chapter in the history book. In, lo in local high schools, that's what it's been reduced to. And, and sadly, America's about money. And anybody who, don't, who doesn't see that has uh, got to be somewhere hiding under a rock. Just watch, follow the money. The politicians are following money. This whole world's about money. Lives are secondary to money. And, and this, they, they talk a good game. They get up on soapboxes. They uh, talk about uh, keeping America safe. Either they're overboard with uh, locking people up or they're uh, all the way uh, on the other side. There's just never been much balance in the criminal justice system and because things are politically driven and they're driven by money. Money has corrupt and it continues to corrupt. And until money and uh the thirst for power from politicians, the Game of Thrones that, that kind of goes on, uh, nothing's actually going to change. And that is a tragedy. William? I, I just wanted to read this real quick because I think it's, 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 it's healthy that we understand this. It said, during September 11, 2001, attacks, 2,977 people were killed, 19 hijackers committed murder-suicide and more than 25,000 others were wounded. It says of the 2,900 or 2,977 victims, fatal victims, 2,753 were killed at the World Trade Center and the surrounding areas, 184 at the Pentagon and 40 in Pennsylvania. Now when you look at that, to Kendrick's point, our parents saw December 7th, 1941. Okay, that was Pearl Harbor. When you think about that, and you think about what we've seen in our generation, this was attack on U.S. soil in the most, in the largest city, populous, in the most dense area, I believe, in our country. And it was on an island. You know, most people realize Manhattan is an island. It's sitting there. And this, this happened on the south end of that island. So when you think about this, it really amplifies, at least for me, it amplifies the fact that this this was a pure attack of terrorism. And, we, and we're not questioning that. But the fact is, is that we are in no better place. I was sitting here thinking as David was talking 
our U.S. military and the guys here at the table that have served, they know there's a lot of money that's spent on intelligence. They'll tell you the battle is won with intelligence. Our law enforcement, well, they'll spend money on bullets. They'll spend money on body armor. They'll spend money on guns. They will not invest in intelligence. And you and we know that was one of the breakdowns. That was the thing that Silk offered and still offers to this day to law enforcement, but allowing them to see, cultivate resources, see real-time activities. When we worked on the software, New York City, I didn't even know had 77 precincts. I didn't even realize it was that dense. And one of the parts that was the real-time updates it's for them to be able to see what's going on in their city. Because you think two blocks over is another precinct. They may not be able to respond. And there's still, to this day, nothing like it. And there's still, to this day, the old our law enforcement is doing the same old thing. So when you talk about sleeper cells, you talk about guys that are being radicalized at our at our universities. Okay, you think we just had the uh, January sixth insurrection trials that are going on, and, and people talking about this. These are acts of people that were that were influenced to act. You know, be it if you like it or not, they acted for the first time in our U.S. history. The Capitol was invaded in such a way. So if they could be incited to do that just with a political belief, think about what's been going on here, radicalizing young, open minds, and, and people are just falling by the wayside. The, our law enforcement has no concept of what's going on. Uh, absolutely right. Dennis? Almost 3,000 people died. That's the, that's the tragedy, the, the biggest tragedy of all. And then to, to have had the ability to get access to software that would collaborate, that would bring our uh, law, law enforcement together, that they can communicate and, and maybe, you know, see something before it happens that in, in order to prevent it. Instead, we're, we're hooked on politics and lobbyists and, 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 and like, like uh, David said, you know, money. You know, it's not about the people. It's not about safety. Again, I agree. I don't think this country is no more safe than it was uh, on that, that, tragic, that tragic day. And I don't think that no one really cares until, guess what? We have another 9-11. So when, uh, when more people start dying, then we react. We shouldn't be about being reactive. We should be about preventive. We should be about doing something now to make a difference to ensure that we never, ever have to deal with another 9-11 again. Well, the problem is we're going to deal with another 9-11, possibly, if status quo continues as it is. There's no, nobody wants to hear that. That's the reality. If we ignored it then, and we're ignoring it now, and we're no safer today after such a tragedy, the reality is we could face that again. Well, you know, America becomes very, very arrogant, and they're usually arrogant about most things that uh, that they got it all under control. Um, really, and that's what's the shocking thing. They do very little. They 
put something out there that shows they're doing something but behind the scenes not a whole lot is really being done so they they market uh he put these huge marketing campaigns about uh law enforcement and what they're doing and and they live off the overall uh mission and the noble concepts of noble ideas of keeping people safe but do they really wake up every day and keep people safe so i'm sure uh, some people are actually dedicated uh to those principles and those values sadly many others are not they're there to collect a check uh they get corrupted by power there's all sorts of reasons and then you got the divisions in this in in this country uh a country is weakened by these type of divisions and enemies take advantage of divisions and which is why something horrible uh sad to say will probably happen again because right right now we are truly divided as a country you know you got this the, the political parties you know and it's just crazy uh, but what you're saying is so true Right now, we're vulnerable because we're so busy fighting each other that we're not looking at the enemy. And again, if we're not concerned about passing or pushing legislation forward to enable us to better protect this country, all because, nope, I'm Democrat, I don't want it. I'm Republican, I want it, but you don't want it. It, it, no. it, it does us no good. Um, I was just reading, it's not really an article, but it was a radio host did an interview with some EMS workers and um, as a police officer and fire department, and he was talking about the communication. Is it better after 9-11? What has changed? And um, one of the statements that I want to read that he said is he said, we should be out of excuses by now. He said, money has been dedicated, apps are being created left and right in our country, uh, we have ways to be able to notify people. We have long surpassed textbooks, paper communication, all this stuff died years ago. He said, I keep asking the question and nobody's can answer. How can we prevent 9-11? How can we do better with communicating? And every department continues to give us excuse after excuse. And unfortunately, we're in the same spot. And so one of the EMS workers said, well, I can't speak for any other division. I can only speak for mine, that we have a great communication policy. But no, we don't have anything to be able to to communicate with standalone EMS agencies or police law enforcement agencies. Well, that's the same issue that IRP was trying to solve 20, 20 something plus years ago, and we're still here today with the same, well, well, same the, issue. And real quick, the problem, uh, the problem stems from the fact everybody has their little kingdom, their little fight from their little power that they want to maintain in their in their particular orbit. So all these people, it's a, and culture has not changed. No. Everybody wants credit. I want to be the man. Uh, and if you notice something about law enforcement, this is really sad. The first, I, I, I encourage people to watch whenever there's a tragedy of uh, mass shooting. The first thing they're talking about, we were on the scene within two minutes or in five minutes. They're sitting there and I'm thinking my federal state and partners there's all of this uh yeah all of this uh, praise going on among the people in law enforcement to promote 
themselves then they actually get into the actual tragedy that's actually happened but they're so busy trying to protect their image uh, and promote themselves uh, and people aren't really watching this but they, that's the first thing they do at a press conference is talk about their response times they got there uh, and uh, we did, we're, we're doing a good job and we did the best we can no, absolutely right. We're going to play a clip right now. Uh, President Barack Obama told a story regarding a gentleman that was a hero during this tragedy. I'll let him tell the story. Let's play the clip. Families of the fallen. In those awful moments, after the South Tower was hit, some of the injured huddled in the wreckage of the 78th floor. The fires were spreading. The air was filled with smoke. It was dark. They could barely see. It seemed as if there was no way out. And then there came a voice, clear, calm, saying he had found the stairs. A young man in his 20s, strong, emerged from the smoke, and over his nose and his mouth, he wore a red handkerchief. He called for fire extinguishers to fight back the flames. He tended to the wounded. He led those survivors down the stairs to safety and carried a woman on his shoulders down 17 flights. Then he went back, back up all those flights, then back down again, bringing more wounded to safety. Until that moment when the tower fell. They didn't know his name. They didn't know where he came from, but they knew their lives had been saved by the man in the red bandana. Again, Mayor Bloomberg, distinguished guests, Mayor de Blasio, Governors Christie and Cuomo, families and survivors of that day. To all those who responded with such courage, on behalf of Michelle and myself and the American people, uh, it is honor for us to join in your memories, to recall and to reflect, but above all, to reaffirm the true spirit of 9-11, love, compassion, sacrifice and to enshrine it forever in the heart of our nation.
there you have it. Former President Barack Obama telling a very moving story, but facts about that young man that went in and rescued as many as he could in the time of crisis. We salute him and all the fallen that fell that day trying to save others. This is IGC Radio. We continue to remember 9-11. We'll be right back. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes? 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prison and in federal prison. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime.
Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many, wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they've faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in a Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they've suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. a Bart police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young you can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and that we're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice and making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we take a journey back to 9-11 and the tragedy that shook a nation. As we have been going through discussion tonight, it is very clear to me that this nation lives in a state of denial. In spite of the facts presented at 9-11, the lives that were lost and the lack of due diligence even to this day. America has lost her way. Uh, that is a conversation that many do not want to have. We're forced to have that conversation. We're forced to have that conversation because if America sits at risk that the homeland is unsafe, we have learned nothing from 9-11 and the tragedy that took place on that day. Dave Zappolo. Well, think about this. If, you, if you're an agency that's looking for money, 
and you stop a tax or you stop something, you're going to get a little bit of money. But if something big happens, you can now go and turn around and say, hey, if we had more money, we could have done this, this, and this that would have stopped this tragedy. And it's cynical, but I believe that's how they think, is if we let this happen, we know this might happen, let's let it happen, we're going to get more money to do what we want to do later on. Well, one and thing. It's very sad to see that. Well, no. the, the government, look around. The government does not do effective things with money. Taxes go up, uh, budgets are larger, and nothing changes. You look here at Colorado, they're supposed to get all the money. They're supposed to do something with parks from the marijuana money. Nothing's been done. Money is, in many instances, a pass-through to special interests. So they get these contracts, they, they pass legislation to get more money, approve more budgets, and all the money gets passed through to some, their special interests. And while a little bit goes to the actual issues that they campaigned on. Uh, case in point, uh, and I'm going to get uh, digressing a, uh, or uh, diverting a little bit, uh, they just passed this so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Then they come back and say, well, inflation has nothing to do with it. Well, it's more about climate change than inflation. Well, then why don't you just say something about the bill? There's always this sleight of hand and duplicity and deception that takes place in politics to let you know that they're really not concerned about the actual issue that they're uh, that they're passing legislation on. It's always some backroom deal to do something else. And you see that with the defense contractors too. I mean, you watch them over and over again where they know there's a defect in something that they're building. They continue to build it. Then when it gets released, they say, oh, there's a defect, we have to start over again. The government never goes and says, well, you could go fix it for free, they just get more money. Well, and we've seen that with Lockheed Martin over and over again, the same thing with Boeing. Well, remember, maintenance contracts are recurring revenue streams. Well, I exactly. Dig I digress now, we go back to the subject, but that's what they are. If they can get a recurring revenue stream for maintenance on their contracts, they don't have to do anything except do little fixes here and there and continue to make a lot of money. Absolutely right, and those are the facts. Uh, we're gonna hear some more of voices from the towers. Let's play the clip. was really very important. The most uh, emotional, poignant moment for me is when he asked him, please hurry and thank you. All right, please hurry. 
to be able to have that uh, presence uh, of mind uh, under pressure like that, I thought was just remarkable. I was really proud of him. I mean, he, to be able to keep that cool and request, please hurry. I think that was his last words. The sonic record of that day, the audible record of that day, is essential because the visual record of that day is limited to the exteriors. He says he's at the 105th floor at One World Trade Center. They're part of the fabric of the day that we wouldn't know or have any understanding of without this sonic record. Brian Nunez was an office manager at Cantor Fitzgerald on the 104th floor of the North Tower. He was just six floors above the plane's impact. I woke up to my telephone ringing. I worked nights at the time, so I didn't want to be bothered. And then my cell phone rang again. And I'm like, I'm not going to answer it. First saved message. Brian left that message and that must have been the first or second phone call that I received that morning and I mean I just didn't realize it now it's, it's really hard to struggle with you know what would have happened if I answered the phone you know, but I mean, I couldn't do anything, even if I did answer it. I keep the message on an MP3 file, so I have it on CD, I have it hidden away in a safe, I have it, you know, on every hard drive I have. I have it, like, everywhere, just so that nothing happens to it. It's Brian's last words. One of the reasons why recordings were made was so people could record their last words. You know, I mean, I think it gives me a little bit of guidance. I, like, draw from Brian's strength when I hear the message. Melissa Harrington Hughes was a business executive attending a meeting on the 101st floor of the North Tower. I just want to let you know I love you, and I'm stuck in this building in New York. There's lots of smoke, and you just want to do the nose, and I love you always. Melissa was in New York for just one day. September 11th started like any other morning. Woke up, put a pot of coffee in. So I was making the bed and the telephone rang. Well, I don't usually answer the phone, but this morning I did. It was my daughter, Melissa. I knew she was in New York. She was only going to be there that Tuesday. When the merger was done, she was flying back to California the next day. Melissa was a little hysterical. I told her, honey, you have to slow down so that your father can understand what the problem is. She got her composure, said to me, Dad, I'm on the 101st floor of the World Trade Center, and a bomb just went off. In my bedroom was a TV set. I turned it on, happened to be on CNN. I saw the fire, I saw the smoke. I was heartbroken. 
She told me that fire wasn't her major concern, but there was an awful lot of smoke. So I said to her, honey, I said, can you see an exit sign? She said, yes, dad. And I said, well, under all the exit signs, honey, are stairwells. I said, you get to that stairwell as fast as you can and get out of the building. It was very unusual that people outside had almost a greater sense of alarm and urgency than the people inside who were in the dark. Families were seeing the billowing smoke and the flames licking up the side of the building. It was just a terrible responsibility for the people on the outside to have to say, it's worse than you think. In the North Tower, Michelle Cartier, an executive assistant, had just started her day. I just felt like this day was just not going to end right. It was just not, a, not going to be a good day. And little did I know that it would be a, a day that changed the rest of my life. Went to work that morning, um, worked at World Trade Center 1 for Lehman Brothers. We were based on the 40th floor. Started going through my emails. It was a normal routine, preparing for the day. And the next thing I know, the building moves. And I could hear the computers sizzling. Then the whole floor just evacuates. Michelle's brother James was also working that day in the Twin Towers, but in the South Tower. In his job as an electrician, James Cartier moved between different floors. The only thing that I wanted to do was to find out where James was. Even though he was four years younger, he always had that older brother role in taking care of everybody. As part of a large, close family growing up in Queens, James used to go biking with his older brother, John. John was teaching James how to, how to ride the motorcycle, so they, they, have, they shared that passion and love for the motorcycle. John was working nearby when James called him from the South Tower. He called me to say that Tower One had been hit by a plane. He could see the smoke um, and that Michelle, my sister, was in Tower One and he didn't know what floor she was on. So, you know, we immediately went into, you know, um, family mode, you know. And uh, I, uh, I said to my brother James, had I known it were my last words, I would have probably chose better words. But, you know, I just told him, I'll meet you on the street and, and I'll be there. As we were descending, um, people were helping one another, you know, just regular everyday workers just helping each other get down the stairs. And I remembered saying to myself, well, as soon as I get to the last step and I get outside, I'll try him again. All of a sudden, in this crowd of thousands of people, I look up and I see my brother John. John was at the World Trade Center because he had received a phone call from his brother James who was on one of the higher floors of the South Tower. Their plan was to meet and find Michelle. Now, I wouldn't have been there at all had he not called me. But his thoughts weren't of himself. His thoughts were of my sister. And 
that we, as her brothers, have a job to do now, to go get her and get her out of there. Fifteen minutes after the North Tower was hit, most people in the South Tower, Tower 2, were still at their desks. Brad Fetchett, an equities trader, was one of them. Hey, Mom, it's Brad. Uh, just wanted to call and let you know. I'm sure that you heard that a plane crashed into World Trade Center 1 or 5 or in World Trade Center 2. I'm uh, obviously alive and well over here, but uh, obviously a pretty scary experience. I saw a guy fall out of probably the 91st story all the way down. So <clears throat> you're welcome to give a call here. I think uh, we'll be here all day, but uh, give me a call back later. He was trying to reassure us that he was okay, but you could tell as he cleared his voice when he talked about seeing someone fall from the 91st floor that there was a lot of fear in his voice. It's available anytime I want to play it back. It's there. I hear it and I know it. I, I know it and uh, I'm still very fragile to listen to it. And so I'm comforted to know it's there, but I don't, I don't listen to it. Charlie Carraher, a systems analyst for Morgan Stanley, worked on the 68th floor in the South Tower. I, I just backed up my chair and looked out, and I, I could see, like, the window looking out over uh, New Jersey. And it actually looked like snow. There were so many pieces of paper, it actually looked like snow. There's a group of about 10 of us uh, standing, um, looking north towards uh, the Empire State Building. And there was like a lot of smoke. It was almost like clouds. And all of a sudden, this, uh, um, this person pops out of it. And he just made it look so easy. He just, he seemed so calm. He just like looked to the left, to the right. And then two people jumped. And uh, as the lady passed by the window, she made eye contact, you could see through the windows, and that, that really spooked me. I mean, you can, um, you can communicate a lot by just, you know, with, uh, with your eyes. And I had to get away from the window. They started, you know, making a choice, you know, burn to death at 2,000 degrees or jump. I'll tell you right now that that is chilling as it gets as those in those towers that day calling out to loved ones to say goodbye and their final goodbyes it's the saddest thing I've ever heard we're going to uh, the next minutes of this show we're going to continue the voices from the towers I think it's critically important that you understand the magnitude of what's happened here. Before we go there, Dave, you have a personal story regarding the towers. Go ahead and share it with our listeners. Well, on 9-11, there were two flights out of Boston, American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175 that flew out of Logan Airport, and they were both going to uh, Los Angeles, and they crashed into the World Trade Centers. That morning, my sister was flying from Boston to Los Angeles, and her original tickets for her flight to Los Angeles was on one of those flights. 
the night before she changed her flight so that she could take her children to school and was on a later flight. She was just arriving at the airport when the planes hit the towers in New York. So had she been there and not changed those flights, she would have been on one of those flights. Exactly. If she had not changed those flights the night before, she would have been on one of those flights. Wow. I mean, people have to realize this is not a TV show. This was something that really happened. Right. And we're 21 years later, and a lot of kids today, 20 years old, they don't remember this. This is something that sitting around here, you can see the emotion on everybody's face. We remember what it was like. We remember the emotion of that day. And to see and listen to what's the the sounds from that day and know that it could happen again is very painful. Absolutely right. We're going to hear. David, did you have a comment? Okay. Let's continue with the voices from the towers. We had fire drills, I think, once a month. A guy would come out and uh, he'd say, this section uses this staircase. And uh, I went to that staircase and it didn't exist anymore. Um, first of all, the, the building was on a, on a slant where I was. It was like walking in a, what we call like a fun house. You know, you know everything, everything looks right, but it's on, a, on an angle. And then when I got to the fire escape uh, section, it was like... Um, a, f- a fire door with with a window you could see through, and there was like I beams hanging down. You know, it just walls not there. I, I couldn't. You know, the uh, the fire escape was the, the the door going down the building was maybe ten feet away from the door, the fire door, and I, I, I there was too much debris in the way. There was no way I was going to get through it. And I remember seeing uh, these. Th- crack on the wall that was actually like you know moving and the floors even on that side in the fire escape were slanted and there was it was it was really weird i didn't see a soul it was in there it was completely empty the second plane hit floors from the 78th floor to the 84th floor and it hit at a much sharper angle than the first one and the real tragedy about it is that the bottom wing went through the 78th floor, which is where the elevator lobby was. And the elevator lobby at the time had probably 200 people in it. And it was a scene of um, incredible carnage. I understand that, sir. I understand that. All right, we're trying to get the people set as we can. Brian Clark, a 54-year-old executive vice president at investment company Eurobrokers, had worked in the World Trade Center for almost 30 years. We had lived through the 1993 bombing, and the fact that something had happened catastrophic, let's call it, next door, and 15, 17 minutes later, the same thing in the South Tower, I knew in that instant that it was terrorism. The room we were standing in absolutely fell apart. Walls were torn at a jagged angle. Everything fell out of the ceiling. Speakers, lighting, cables, air conditioning ducts, everything came down. The sensation was that the whole building was moving to the west very slowly in in just this one half oscillation. And the sensation was that it moved at six to eight feet. My instinct was that 
I have a responsibility to try and get people off the floor. Brian's training as a volunteer fire marshal would prove to be crucial. There were six or seven other people in the room with us, and I led them into the corridor. And we went to the center core. In that one hallway, there were no stairways. I had a choice to go to my right, to stairway C, forward to stairway B, or left turn to stairway A. I, for unknown reasons, just felt this nudge and turned to the, my left and found stairway A. Meanwhile, Diane, Brian's wife, learned of the attack by watching the news. Both towers of the World Trade Center have apparently been hit by aircraft. She wasn't worried because she thought he worked well below the impact zone. She and Brian had been married for 31 years. We actually met when we were in the first year of high school, and um, it was very apparent to me by the time I finished high school that Brian was the, Brian was the person for me. Diane and Brian have four married children. Our son Tim called and he was at work. I said, don't worry, Tim, because dad's not. It, 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 it's hit way higher than dad is. And Tim said, mom, dad's not on the 31st floor. He's on the 84th floor. And then I realized, I, I, I could see it so clearly, that the plane had come in just about at his floor. But Brian's office on the 84th floor was on the other side of the building from the plane's impact. He led a group of seven people down the stairs. At the 81st floor, they met two people coming up, trying to escape the thick smoke below. So the group decided to go back up the stairs, but Brian remained behind. I got completely distracted by hearing this banging noise inside the 81st floor. And I continued on to this voice with my flashlight and as I got closer and closer, him directing me left, right, you know, toward his voice, um, suddenly he said, uh, can you see my hand? Can you see my hand? And I mean, we were just two yards apart, probably. And then suddenly this waving hand came into focus and I shone the light. He was down near the floor level, shone the light up his arm and saw really poking through a hole in the wall, this, these two bright eyes and, and immediately was, hallelujah, I've been saved. Stanley Pramnath was buried under heavy debris, trapped there when the second plane crashed into his South Tower office on the 81st floor. Two of the stairways were blocked and could not go down. Stairway A was on the far side of where the plane had crashed in. It had hit in the floors where the elevator equipment was. And the World Trade Center had this mammoth elevator engines and it literally stopped the impact of the plane and stairway A was on the far side and that survived the impact zone. When we got out onto the 81st floor landing of course everybody else had gone up but my instinct was I want to try I want to see what's down there and shone my light down the stairs and there was some smoke coming up and we dug our way through rubble for several floors, mostly drywall that had blown in on the stairs. But in the darkness, you weren't 100% sure what it was. Uh, we slid some because there was water flowing underfoot. Um, and by the 78th floor, as we passed that floor, the wall was cracked and there were little flames licking up inside the wall. 
And we kept going. It got a little better on 77. And by the 74th floor, we broke into what I would call almost normal conditions. Fresh air, lights on. In the South Tower, anyone below the impact zone between the 77th and 85th floors were getting out, if they could. Stanley and I continued on down until we got to the 44th floor. We went in there, and in the middle of that floor, which is like a long hotel lobby, if you like, that runs the entire length of the building, there was one security guard in gray flannel slacks and his blue blazer, and he looked at us quite excited. He said, do you have telephones? And, I, and I, both of us said, no, we don't have phones. He said, oh, he says, my phones don't work. He said, but I'll stay with this man, and he kind of backed up. And there was a man, a Caucasian, massive head wounds, back wounds, semi-conscious lying on the floor. Um, how he got the injuries, how he got to the 44th floor, I don't know. But the security guard said, I'll stay with this man, but you must promise me to get a medic and a stretcher to the 44th floor. I said, we'll do our best. Stanley and I went back to the stairs, down, down, down. On the 31st floor, it was completely vacant. Nobody, nobody was present except Stanley and I. We got into their conference room, and I picked up the conference room telephone and got dial tone. It was Brian calling. He said um, that he was okay. There was a cheer went up in this in the house. We could just, we you know, we knew that he was that he was okay. With the seconds ticking away, Brian Clark kept his promise to the security guard and called for help. I then called 911 to tell them about the man on the 44th floor and they needed a medic and a stretcher to get there. And I got put on hold. On the 44th floor? 44th floor, tower, tower two. Head injuries, the person's uh, in pain, lying down, can't walk. Can I not leave you with that message, please, and just me begin walking down again? You have to talk to EMS. Hold on. Oh, dear. Thank you. Hello, EMS. Um, I'm sure you got lots of calls. I'm just mm -hmm. alerting you to the uh, 44th floor of Tower 2. There is a man down with head injuries. Okay. Is this about the World Trade? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of units over there on sure. the scene already. Well, can you make sure somebody gets to the 44th floor lobby? There is a security guard with him, but he has no phones out at that floor. So I'm making a call from another floor. All right. Um... You're not a police operator, right? No, I'm not. I'm just a, a tenant in the middle of evacuating. I want to keep walking, but I just want to make sure that somebody knows about this man on the 44th floor of Tower 2. Oh, goodness. Hold on a second. Because we are so backed up here. Well, I sure you are, but can you write that down and I can keep walking, please? Well, as soon as I get... Sure. Hold on one second, because we we have so much information on here that the other computers are down. Yeah, well, okay. okay. But I, have to, I have to keep walking. I'm sorry. No problem. But thank you. The response of the emergency service operators tell you what was happening in real time. The sorrow, the intensity, the fear, um, the, the lack of understanding of what's going on. Sir, are you on the 80? I'm going to hear the noise. Are they going to come up to you? going to have to check every room. It's no matter. We can't do more. You don't know. Oh, boy. Oh. 
stuff, the awful things, the awful, awful, awful things to call somebody and tell them you're going to die. That's the awful thing. Just seconds before the South Tower was hit, Shimmy Beagleisen's mother had urged him to leave. Now he was trapped on the 97th floor. By 9.15, Shimmy's loved ones had filled the family's Brooklyn apartment. The phone passed between them as each offered him consolation and advice. We had Shimmy on the phone. We were trying to find different ways how to calm him down and relax him, possibly about different ways of maybe getting out and trying different exits. At one point when I was talking to him, he uh, shared a few private things with me. He asked me to look after his wife and children. And all this time, I was able to hear in his voice that the situation was becoming a lot worse. There was now fire and dense smoke above the impact zone and those trapped there began to panic. Shimmy's best friend, David, called to try and calm him, keeping 911 on the other line. Shimmy? Yeah. Just hang in there. Just breathe slowly through the towel. You breathe through the towel? Sure. Everything's fine. Everybody's fine. Everybody's very calm. Everything's going to be fine. You just, you have to stay calm. Everybody here is calm, I promise you. The girls don't even know because they're in school. Parents are here, they're very calm. Just keep, keep your head straight. Okay, do you see smoke by the window? The fire department wants to You can't see? Do we see smoke by the window? The fire department wants to know. No smoke by the window. No smoke by the window. No. Listen carefully. As a last resort, break the window as small as possible just to get a little air in. Okay, but you follow? Yeah. Okay, how so? They said the last resort, we should open the window just a little bit to get some air in. Can you open, can you open the window or you have to break it? Yeah. Huh? You have to break it. Yeah. Break the window. Okay, shimmy, shimmy. Yeah. Break the window. Break the window. As little as possible, just get a little air. 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 If you're running out of air, you're running out of air, we should do that. Okay. Okay? I'm very grateful that he was able to spend his last moment speaking to the people who were closest to him. At the end of your life, I would imagine you want some sort of comfort, and I hope, and it seems from what everyone has told me, that he was given that. That's all I could hope for. What strikes me about these final calls is the range of human emotion. The terror when talking to a dispatcher who's supposed to rescue him and the focus of giving one message to a loved one, I love you and tell the children I love you, is how focused they didn't dabble on, they didn't try to stay on the line, they said what was most important to them. Stephen Muldery was a 33-year-old equities trader working for an investment company in the South Tower. September 11th it was a beautiful, beautiful day, as everyone always will remember, I know. I was very pleased to be going to a yoga class around the corner in the village hall. And at the end of the class, I walked home. And when I came into this house, 
there was a blinking light on the answering machine, and I had six messages. Not the usual thing. And one of the messages was from Stephen. Mom, it's Stephen. Um, my plane, uh, my building got hit by a plane, and right now it's, uh, I think I'm okay, I'm safe now, but it's smoky. I just want to say how much I love you, and uh, I will uh, call you when I'm safe. Okay, Mom? Bye. Stephen worked in the South Tower. He was on the 89th floor. He said that he was going to call me and that he was going to be all right. There were messages then from people calling to say, Anne, are your children all right? And then there was a message from my husband. And he said, promise me you will not turn on the television. And that was an easy promise to make. Family came, girl, boy, girl, so there was a little triumvirate at the top. <laughs> and then four boys came in a very quick succession. And Stephen was the third of that group of four. I just went out in the backyard and I sat in a plastic, you know, $5 plastic chairs under a tree and with the phone in my lap preparing myself for what I would need to face. Families often have a map in their minds of where their loved ones are in the world. You know, if somebody in your family is working at a place that has now become the center of all the world's attention, and there's a calamity unfolding. In your mind, you're trying to place your loved one. Where are they in relationship to this terrible series of events that's unfolding. Jim Gartenberg, a successful real estate executive, had recently accepted a promotion at a new company. September 11th was Jim's last day working at the World Trade Center. Saying goodbye, I love you, is the last thing I can remember seeing him walking out the door that morning on September 11th. Jill and Jim had been married for seven years. Their daughter, Nicole, was three years old. I went to work soon after he did, and my office is very close to our apartment, so I just walked a few blocks. When I got there, there was a message light blinking, and I listened to the machine right away. And that was, I didn't even know what that meant. I listened to the message actually several times because I wasn't really sure what he was saying. I couldn't believe what he was saying. Just a minute later, I spoke to him. Unlike the message on the machine, which sounded frantic, when I first spoke to him, he sounded very calm 
very controlled. He said to me, I'm going to be okay. You know, there's a fire, but I'm going to be okay. And he said, he was, I said, stay down low. I mean, right? What we learned, stay down low if there's a fire. And he stayed down low, and he was hiding behind a desk, and he was trying to call for help, and he had no idea what was going on. In Chicago, Jim's closest friend, Adam, had just arrived at work. I turned on CNBC, and they said, you know, we go live to the World Trade Center, and there was smoke coming out of the building. The first thing I did was call his office. He picked up the phone right away, and he had a, a, a voice that I had never heard before, and it was, you know, just utter panic and fear and expletives. There's fire, there's smoke everywhere, there's debris, I can't get out. You got to get me out of here. He had asked what happened, and he, he didn't know, and, and I didn't know. Jim was six floors below the point of impact. He was trapped by falling debris. His comments were then, we'll come, okay, what are we supposed to do? And I told him, there's fire and it's going up, you need to get down. And he said, I can't go anywhere, the stairs are blown out below us, you know, the debris's too heavy, we can't move anything. At this point, a half hour had passed. Having spoken to his wife, Jill, and best friend, Adam, Jim now wanted his predicament to be known to the watching world. He managed to make contact with a reporter at the New York Times, Jim Dwyer. I spoke with him several times that morning, and I was trying to understand what his predicament was, why he couldn't get to the, to the stairs or why he couldn't get to an exit. And he said that, you know, the walls were um, cracking and folding over and, and he couldn't get to where he needed to be. Mr. Gartenberg seemed to be very directed, very focused. I mean, he was, you know, there's a sense of great urgency in his voice, but I, I didn't feel like he was panicking. He wanted people to know where he was and that he couldn't leave the building. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, Nicole. Jim has always been a leader. And I think that showed through on that day. When I first met Jim, he was the president of the Michigan Alumni Club in New York. I saw the way that he was running this meeting and the way he was interacting with people and his leadership skills. There was all these qualities about him that all of a sudden I said, wow, this is a really special guy. After speaking to the New York Times, Jim's next call was to a New York TV news station. At 9.32, 45 minutes after the first tower was hit, Jim's voice was heard on national television. Jim Gartenberg joins us. He was on the 86th floor of, uh, I'm not sure which tower, was it the east, north or south, Jim? It's World Trade Center 1. 
and it's not was. I am here, and I'm stuck right now. Now, you, are you above Jim or below? I have no idea. I have no idea where the plane hit. I'm, it's my understanding that it's a plane. Jim, um, there are two planes. One went into one tower. One went into the other tower. What do, what do you see around you? I mean, are you in, are you in smoke? Are you in fire? I mean, the, the first thing that I want to make clear is that I'm stuck on the 86th floor. Um, a fire door has trapped us. Debris has fallen around us, and part of the core of the building is blown out. How many people are with you, Jim? I'm with one other person, and I'm told that people are aware of this. I'm on the 86th floor on the east side of the building facing the East River. And what time if did I'm you get... I'm on the air. I want to tell anybody that has a family member that may be in the building that the situation is under control for the moment, and the danger has not increased. So please, all family members, take it easy. I got a phone call from a friend of mine on my cell phone saying, Jill, Jim's going to be okay. He was just on national television, and he said he's going to be okay. She told me what he said and how confident he was about it. They broadcast his voice. I saw tapes of that and listened to it, and it's eerie. The, the, the voice that I hear on that is not his, and it's just so odd as far as the voice is concerned. But his message was unbelievably calm and brave and stoic. Having seen that was just a, a tremendous tribute. I think for a lot of people to be in crisis mode, they would just sit there and scream. And Jim would kind of regroup with himself, it seems like, and said, okay, this is the situation. How do I best deal with this? And he reached out to as many people as he could, trying to figure out what resources he had to be helpful in this situation. I mean, he had the, the sense of mind to do that. And the danger has not increased, so please all family members take it easy. I think that was wonderful, but I knew in my heart he was not going to be okay. Uh, you got it coming in for building number two on the 97th floor, people trapped. 90 what floor? We're all around the building. Almost 2,000 people were trapped in the north and south towers. Firefighters from across New York were sent to the scene. Knowing what he might soon face, fireman Walter Hines left a hurried voice message for his wife. Walter knew this was so serious. I could tell from the sound of his voice. He knew this was something he might not get out of. And I think that he just needed to, to let us know that he loved us. The voice message that Walter left is still on his business phone, which I've kept in his office. I've probably listened to the message hundreds of times. Everybody has told me that, that has lost loved ones, that this, you lose the sound of their voice, that you can't remember the sound of people's voices after they've gone. And I, I tend to think that that's true. I think it's a good reminder to have Walter's message for my daughters, that they can continue to hear him.
Stephen was with us for 33 years. And we have a choice. We can either say we are so mad that he's not here. Or we can say we had him for 33 years. And we have a feast to return to. The feast of the memories. Stephen worked alongside a group of close college friends, all former high school athletes. Stephen was very relaxed, smiling, laughing. He was very laid back, very happy. You know, he really was uh, happy a, a lot of the time. Back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we've taken moments to look back at the tragedy of 9-11. And one of the greater tragedies we've discussed on this show is the silencing attempt of the RP5. David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Clinton Stewart. As I sit here tonight, after hearing the testimonies of those that cried from the tower as they knew without a doubt that death was coming. There were also those that scared in situations that many jumped from the towers, choosing rather to jump to their death rather than suffer the inferno of the towers. We are in a very bad situation when this country continues to sit idly by and do nothing. Doesn't matter how many committees you have on 9-11 on Capitol Hill. Doesn't matter how many hearings you hold to the victims or their families in hearings by whatever chosen committee chooses to do so. What matters is, is that politics be laid aside and true care and concern be applied to the American people. That is what is important. It's not what you write in a bill. It's what you do by your actions and by your behavior. I would plead with members of Congress organizations that care about what happened on that day which will forever be in our minds and in our hearts the tragedy that shook a nation it is my hope that some type of change will be implemented right away we close this show tonight with the little girl who lost her father on that day till next time America good night
It's been a year, Daddy. I really, really miss you. Mommy says you're safe now in a beautiful place called heaven. together. Mom says he's a lot like you. I think about you every day. I'm still sad, but you make me strong. Can you see me? Can you see me? I miss you, Daddy. I really miss you, Daddy. I miss you, Daddy. I miss you, Daddy. 